Let's pray. Father, we've gathered this morning to magnify your name, to exalt you and to rejoice in you because you are a Savior God who has sent your King to redeem us from misery and affliction. He has lived in our place, he's died in our place, and he has risen from the dead. We praise you, Father, not only for that truth, but also for this occasion to consider these things once more. And we pray, Father, that what we find in the Word this morning, to many of us very familiar already, but we we pray, Lord, that, that it would frame our thinking, that it would inform our joy during this season, that we would of all people be most joyful because we know the truth and the salvation of Jesus Christ has been applied to our lives. We ask, Lord, that in our joy we would, we would speak of Jesus to one another and to those outside this place, that we would love Him more, and that we would truly celebrate His coming. We ask for your help as we study your word today. We ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Everyone, everywhere, is dealing with some kind of trouble right now. Everybody. Inside this place and outside this place, there are people who are terminally ill, people who have recently been the victim of horrible acts by other people, others who have relationships that are in a shambles, many who have sin habits that are wreaking havoc on their own lives and the lives of people around them. But here is the best news that our culture has to offer at this time of year. There's marshmallows for toasting. We we can be happy tonight. Sleigh bells ring. Aren't you listening? Culture even offers a solution for the problem of sin. We're constantly reminded of the great omniscient judge Santa Claus is coming to town in the midst of all all the affliction that that we we are experiencing and everyone across the world is experiencing. All this fallen world has to offer is transient mini-pleasures and empty moralism that fixes nothing. And if we would be truly helped and joyful we would do well to fix our attention on the actual good news. God has done something miraculous. Not marshmallows, but a Messiah. 
And in Luke chapters 1 and 2, we, we get a look through three people's experiences at that good news through their responses. Mary praises, Zechariah prophesies, and Simeon prays. And through them, we find what we should do, what we should proclaim, and how we should live because of what God has done, who has come, and what we've seen. So that's what we're going to consider this morning. That's what we're going to consider next Sunday morning, Lord willing, and next Sunday evening. And we begin this morning with Mary's praise. What we should do because of what God has done. God has seen our affliction, and remedied it in Christ. What should we do then because of what God has done? Well, let's find out. I'll ask you to stand with me. We're going to read a couple of sections here in Luke chapter 1 for context before we get to our our main text. We'll begin in Luke chapter 1, verse 30. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. So, just backing up here and and think about this for a second before we move on. Mary is going to conceive by the Holy Spirit. She's going to give birth to the heir of David, promised long ago. Her offspring is, is going to not just be a king, but he's going to be the king. And the nature of his conception means that he's going to be the holy son of God. Incredible news. Mary's womb is the womb through which God is going to keep all of his promises. As we we continue on, Mary goes to visit her relative Elizabeth. Look at verse 41 now. When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And now our main text for this morning, verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. and My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. 
He has shown strength with His arms. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away empty. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. You may be seated. Now this blessing about which Mary has praised God here, this is a blessing to everyone who belongs to Christ through faith. And her response then, something that should be mirrored by us. We have all received the gift that she's received. She does something in this text. Her response should be mirrored by us. And her word of praise indicates to us that that what it indicates to us what we should do because of what God has done. Okay, so so first of all, let's think let's think through this text in terms of what we should do. This is going to bracket our time together. We're going to think about this at the beginning. We'll think about it again at the end. There's a couple of things that we should do in light of this text. The first is exalt. We should exalt. E x a l t. Verse forty six reads, and Mary said, "My soul magnifies the Lord." Now, we've, we've all played with a magnifying glass, and obviously a, a magnifying glass makes things bigger. Now, in, in this case, to magnify the Lord is not to make Him bigger than He actually is. That would be impossible, but rather to magnify Him in this sense is to lift Him to the place that He deserves in our own eyes and in the eyes of, of others around us. It, it is to exalt Him. Fallen humans, we naturally dishonor God. We, we naturally lower Him in our own eyes and in the eyes of others from where He actually belongs. We, we have knowledge of his, his existence. We have knowledge of His greatness. We, we even know because of the things made all around us of the worthiness of His worship. And yet, we demote Him. And in His place, we elevate created things to be our objects of worship. And we we see this especially this time of year. Things being elevated to to objects of worship of of highest importance. And the Lord Jesus is, is, is not even mentioned. To magnify God is to enlarge our own estimation of who He is and how magnificent He is, and to worship Him as an exalt. My soul magnifies the Lord, Mary says. My soul recognizes the greatness of God, and I extol Him. So, exaltation includes extolling, which is saying out loud how great God is. Saying it to Him, saying it to others. It's praising God to Him to other people. So we, we should exalt. We should also exult. E-X-U-L-T. We should exult. Verse 47. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Exaltation of the Lord is not supposed to be an emotionless, robotic exercise. But, but rather, it, it should be accompanied by exaltation or rapturous joy. This is what we see in Mary. She's emotionally overwhelmed by what God has done 
and she is filled with joy as a result. She, she rejoices. She says, in God my Savior. All joy has, has an object. Every time we feel joy, there, there's some object of that joy. In, in secular Christmas culture, would suggest objects of joy like chestnuts, snow, your wish list. The good news here gives us an object of of ultimate joy, and that is God. God is the ultimate object of joy. And with Him in His right place, we can then enjoy appropriately all these other things. We can do it in worship to Him. She says, I rejoice because of God, my Savior. And with that, she begins to forecast that there is a particular thing that God has done that is leading her to rejoice. And we'll get to that in a minute. But for now, just note that God is a Savior. God is a Savior. Exaltation, exaltation. We're going to return and look at these two things toward the end of our time this morning because the fuel for both of those things actually comes in the next section of the text. So we should exalt and exult, and we're about to find out why. It all boils down to, to what God has done, what God has done. And th- this comes in verses 48 through 55. The, the little word at the beginning of verse 48 signals to us, you're about to get some reasons here for, for why I have exalted and exalted. And we're going to see three of them, three reasons to exalt and exalt. The first is, in His power, He has saved. In His power, He has saved. Look again at verse 48. For He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For He who is mighty has done great things for me. Now, for, first of all, that God looked on the state of His servant does not simply mean that God has noticed Mary's humble estate, but rather that He's moved to fix it. Mary's exaltation and her exaltation is not simply because God has eyes, but because He has acted on what He has seen. And what did He see? Well, there's, there's, there's one Greek word that underlines this phrase in our translations, humble estate, there in verse 48. And, and, and most translations will translate this word that way, humble estate. Let me suggest to you that Mary is using Old Testament language. And this word that, that we find here is found multiple times in the Greek version of the Old Testament. Many times we will hear people in the Old Testament say things like, the Lord has heard or the Lord has seen my misery or my affliction. Affliction is, is how that word is translated over and over in the Old Testament. Affliction or misery. In some of those Old Testament uses of, of this word, God sees the suffering of a woman and He addresses it by giving her a child. So let, let me give you a few of those examples. In Genesis 16.11, when, when Hagar becomes pregnant with Ishmael, she describes as her affliction using this word, that persecution that she was experiencing by Sarah. And so God, in her affliction, gives her a son. In Genesis 29-32, when Leah became pregnant with Reuben, she says, I'm going to name him Reuben because God has, given, has seen my affliction, and the affliction was that she was not loved by her husband. 
So now this son is going to make me loved by my husband. It's going to, he's going to solve my affliction. In 1 Samuel 1.11, 1 Samuel 1.11, the barren Hannah prays to God that he will give her a son in her affliction is the provocation that she was experiencing by her sister wife, Penina. So Lord, if you give me this son, if you look on my affliction, you give me a son, then everything will be made right. So this word, which here is translated humble estate, is used in other Old Testament circumstances, not just with these three women, but but across the, the Old Testament. It is always indicating affliction or misery. It's not, it's not, not what we might think when we see that word humble attached to a state. We might think, well, this is, this is just humility. It's being poor. It's being lowly. It's not just that. I would suggest that when we read the phrase humble estate in, in our New Testament translations right here, we understand the broader biblical context and we see this. This is a state of affliction or misery that Mary finds herself in. By using that word and and other phrases that she's going to use later on, also borrowed from the Old Testament, Mary reveals that she sees herself as as coming in a long line of those who have been been rescued from affliction, often through the birth of a baby boy. And, And Mary says, the mighty one, the powerful one, he has done great things for me. He's done great things by sending this baby. The, the power of God is, is emphasized in this text in that where, where we read the, the one who is mighty, it's just the power or the powerful. And, and God's display of, of power has come in that He has caused a baby to, to be conceived in a virgin. Now, this, this doesn't happen. We, we, we find multiple examples, some of which I've already mentioned. Multiple examples in the, in the Old Testament of, of God opening the womb of a barren woman. But what we find here in, in Luke chapter 1, this is utterly unique and it's astounding. God's power is displayed there in that a, a, a woman who is a virgin is going to be with child. God's power is also going to be displayed in what this baby will do. He's going to, he's going to address, this baby king is going to address Mary's misery. It's going to make it all right. Now, what, what is that affliction or misery that Mary's talking about? Well, let's keep going and see if we can find out. Now, for, for, first of all, a word on the structure of the passage from, from this point forward. Just look down at verses 48 through 50. Just scan those verses. And you might even bracket them with your fingers, 48 through 50. That is one section of this text. And then you can do the same with verses 51 through 55. 51 through 55 is a second section. And if we look really closely at these two sections, what we find is that the second section has elements that parallel elements of the first section, all right? So we've just looked at a first reason to exalt and exalt back there in verses 48 and 49. There is a parallel to that reason down in verse 51. So let's jump down to verse 51. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Now, now we may wonder at this point, just kind of as a tangential thing perhaps, why is Mary using the past tense here if, if what she's actually talking about is something that this future king will be born to her, this future king is going to do? 
Well, this is, this is a way that, that, that people in the Bible frequently talk about when they are certain that something is going to happen. It is so certain that this king is going to do what Mary is talking about here, that she talks about it as if it's already happened. This is, this is similar to what we do. Like We get mad at somebody and say, you're dead. Well, they're not. We're talking to them. What we're saying is, you are as good as dead. And so the same kind of thing going on here. Mary is using the past tense because of the certainty of what this king is going to do. And, and one of the things that he's going to do is show strength with his arm. She's, she uses the past tense. He, God, has shown strength with his arm. Now, if you're taking notes, you might write down Deuteronomy 26, verses 6 through 8. Deuteronomy 26, verses 6 through 8. Now, that's one of these Old Testament passages where we find this same word for humble estate, but it's translated as affliction. We find that and we find it alongside language about God's arm. All right? So listen to this. Deuteronomy 26.6. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and, and laid on us hard labor. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction. Same word that's translated humble estate in, in Luke chapter 1. He saw our affliction and our toil and our oppression, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. These, these phrases are the same phrases that Mary uses right here to describe her state and what God has done about her state, all right? Mary sees what God has, she, she sees what God is doing through her, the coming of this king, she sees that as in some way like what God did in saving His people from their misery and affliction in Egypt. God, through the coming of this baby king, He's going to save His people from their misery and, and from their affliction. And it's difficult for us to know exactly what, what is the nature of the misery and affliction that Mary has in mind. It, it's, it's possible that what she has in mind is, is the Jews' subjugation under the Romans. That, that may be it. But, but here's the ultimate significance. If, if, if we put this passage in, in, the, in the scope of all the Bible, the ultimate significance, the true affliction and misery of man is sin. It's sin. Man, since Genesis chapter 3, has suffered under the weight of and consequences of his sin. Because Adam sinned against God, then all who came from Adam, which includes every one of us, everyone across the world, we all, like Adam, are separated from God. And in that separation, human beings can only experience malfunction and misery. We see that not just in the Bible. We do definitely see it in the Bible. We see that in our own lives. That in our separation from God, all we know as humans is malfunction and, and misery. We cannot do and be what we were created to do and be because we are separated from God. Every problem you have, every last one, is a result of sin. Either your sin or someone else's sin or what sin has done to the creation. All of it. Every problem you have, sin leads to misery and death. It only makes your life 
worse. It only leads to slavery. And, and if we would be rescued then from our ultimate affliction, we must be rescued from sin. And that's why the angel, when, when the angel came to talk to Joseph in Matthew one twenty one, he said about this coming king, he will save his people from their sins. Now Mary says here that he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. The ones who think that they don't need God to address their affliction. And, and that, that is what pride is at its core. It's people who don't think they need God, don't need Jesus. They are described here using Old Testament terms associated with exile. So, so remember that, that, that Mary and, and her people, the, the, their whole cultural understanding is, is tied up in this reality that for the previous several hundred years of their history, they have been under the control of foreign powers. And if you ask any of them why, if they're familiar with the Old Testament, they will tell you, well, we're suffering under the, the power of foreign oppressors because of our sin against God. That's what the prophets say over and over. They, they warn about this. The people would be cast out of their land if they did not repent and turn back to God. And they didn't repent and turn to God. And so they were cast out of of their land into exile, scattered among these foreign nations. But we find in, in Old Testament history that even after they're allowed to come back to the land, they still suffer under the Medo-Persians and the Greeks. And, and now, as, as Mary is saying these words, they're, they're suffering under the Romans. And Mary's words here indicate that, that those who don't trust in this coming king, this king that's going to be born from her womb, those who don't trust him but who, but who continue in the pride of their hearts, rejecting him, they're going to suffer something like the exile. They're going to be cast out. And this is exactly what the book of Revelation depicts about the end. Those who reject Christ, they continue in misery. They continue in ultimate separation from God eternally. Mary exalts and exalts because of God's power being displayed through this coming king who is going to save her from her affliction. Now, let's... let's Think about this for just a moment in, in more personal terms. Do you remember your enslavement to sin? Do you remember those days? It may not have been under any kind of foreign oppressor, but it was just as real and it was just as dark, was it not? Do, do, do you remember how you were drawn to sin? like a moth to the flame, and yet it only ever burned you? It, it only brought affliction? It left you empty, condemned, and languishing in misery? Do you remember that? He who is mighty has done great things for you. He's done great things for you through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. In His power, He has saved you. That, that, is, a, that is a reason to exalt God and to exalt, ex, exalt in our 
in our Savior. A second reason for exaltation and exaltation in His holiness, He has brought justice. In His holiness, He's brought justice. Let's look at the rest of verse 49. And holy is His name. God is holy. That is, He is utterly other than His creation. He's set apart. And we, f- we find repeatedly in the Bible that God's otherness is manifested in, in His moral perfection. God is, is completely distinct from His creation in His moral perfection, and His moral perfection leads Him to bring justice, okay? So, so that's the end of verse 49. Let's jump down to the parallel versions, um, verses in, in 52 and 53. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich He sent away empty. Now, when, when we hear the words justice and injustice, two terms which have become so loaded in, in recent years, we may face a couple of problems, just, just hearing those words. The, the first problem is that we hear someone use the word justice or injustice, so, some of us may just bristle and become suspicious of, of a person using that, that, those words. A second problem is that, that, that we may just misunderstand what that person means. I say justice or, or injustice. So, some in our culture then might, might read these verses and, and find justifica- justification for our culture's misappropriation of those words. And, and so they might read these couple of verses and say, you see, justice is taking from the rich and giving to the poor. It, it's revolution against authority. And it's, it's support for the underclass. And, and what we need to do is we need to be very careful that, that, that we read the Bible like the biblical authors and not like Karl Marx would. Our hermeneutics should be informed by the biblical authors in the context of the whole Bible. Now, it absolutely is the case. It is the case that, that throughout history, many in positions of authority have taken advantage of the weak. God hates that. Makes it very clear. But God also makes very clear that authority is not inherently evil. The Bible further makes it clear that it is not inherently good to automatically question all authority. God hates that. Likewise, wealth, not inherently evil, not not inherently bad. Read the book of Proverbs. Wealth is good. Wealth is a a blessing. However, if wealth becomes your God, just like anything else, it'll destroy you. The Bible is clear about all these things. When we read the Old Testament prophets, we find that that in ancient Israel, the most immediate abusers of authority were among them, not above them. It was their own kings, their own priests, their own prophets. And we can read Old Testament passages like Jeremiah 23 or Ezekiel 34 to, to, to pick up on that. The, the, the kings, the priests, the false prophets, 
they took advantage of people. And this was a huge problem. It's one of the problems that, that led the people into exile. Conversely, and because of this, one of the most prominent characteristics of the coming son of David, according to the prophets, is that he is going to be a righteous judge. And, and what the prophets mean by that is also very clear if we read those passages about this coming King David. He's a righteous judge in that he is going to punish the wicked and he is going to reward the righteous. As, as opposed to what the unjust shepherds of Israel had been doing, which was rewarding the wicked and punishing the righteous. And, and of this, this coming King, whom we know to be Jesus, of this, this coming righteous judge, Isaiah 9-7 says this, Of the increase of His government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Now, the, the, the passage that we're looking at this morning, it connects God's holiness with His bringing justice through Christ. And it's important for us to think about about how this is the case. God is holy, and so every sin gets punished. God is a righteous judge. Christ the King, a righteous judge, and so every righteous deed gets, gets paid or rewarded. And so we, we might wonder, those of us who are well familiar with what the Bible says about us and our human condition, we might wonder, well, then how does any of this end in salvation? Because we have all sinned. And so we all ought to be those whom the righteous judge repays for our guilt and sin. We ought not be those who are rewarded in any way. Well, This is where the cross of Christ comes in. At the crucifixion, all the sin and guilt of all Christ's people were credited to Him. And He paid for all of that through His own suffering and death. So, so for all those who are, are joined to Christ by faith, justice came upon Christ for their sins. And, and so they are forgiven. Now, the other side of that coin is that all those who are outside of Christ, who have not trusted Him, well, then justice comes upon them for their sins. At the same time, all the righteous works that have ever been done were done by Jesus Christ or through Jesus Christ. And so all the righteous works done by Jesus, they are rewarded without fail. But they're rewarded not only to Christ, but they're also rewarded to those of us who are united to Him by faith. See, Christ not only takes our sin and guilt, but He also gives us His righteousness and its rewards. And, and it would be wrong for God to allow any sin to go unpunished. And it would also be wrong for Him, it would be incompatible with His holiness for Him to not reward righteousness. And so through Christ, God shows Himself to be all of that, to be holy and to be just in, in both recompensing evil and rewarding righteousness. Now, Mary exalts and she exalts in this. 
and, and, and we ought to do the same. So, so let's bring all of that into, into more uh, personal spaces, we might say. The sins that, that you've committed, the guilt associated with, with every evil deed that you've committed, every evil thought that you've had, God's justice demands payment for every single one. And a day of judgment is coming. Payment will be made for those sins. If you have repented of your sin and trusted in Christ, we, we sing about this so much. I'm not sure if we quite grasp this, but all that guilt, all that guilt on the day of judgment will have been paid by Christ for those who have trusted in Him, who have repented of their sin. It will be revealed by God to all creation. This one's sins, the guilt that stained his soul, her soul, this has been eradicated by the payment made in Christ's blood. At the same time, if you have not repented and trusted in Christ, you will be liable. You will be liable eternally. So let's, let's, let's bring that perhaps even more immediately into our, into our own minds. Call to mind your most recent sin. Your most recent sin. It, it, it may have even been something you've done since you got into this building this morning. Can you, can you think about that, whatever it was? Perhaps, perhaps it was just thinking wrongly about someone making an assumption about their motives. Something that the world would think, that's not a thing. That thing is is capable of of, of condemning you eternally. That one could condemn you eternally. So you've recalled your most recent. Think about your most heinous, your most heinous sin. And for for, for many of us, that one is, is, is far easier to remember than our most recent if you are in Christ, neither of those sins are counted against you. Your most recent, your most heinous, everyone in between or before or after, the guilt of every one of them, all of them, no longer recorded against us because in an instant they were recorded against Christ and He drowned them in His death. The King paid for them with His own blood on the cross. That is a reason, that is a reason to exalt and to exalt. In His holiness, God brings justice. Third, in His mercy, He's kept His promise. In His mercy, He's kept His promise. And now we're we're back up in verse 50 in the first section. And His mercy... Is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. You see how Mary is now moving? She was speaking in very personal, personal terms earlier. He was mighty. He has done great things for me, she says. And now she's, she's recognizing that, that His mercy is, is to all generations, generation after generation. It's fantastic news for you and I. But, but the word mercy, let's think about that for just a moment. Wayne Grudem has done some fantastic work on this word, and, and it's used throughout the Bible. And, and he has argued persuasively, in my view, that mercy 
refers to God's goodness toward those who are in misery, which makes it a great word for for Mary to be using here because she's just been talking about her misery or affliction. Now she says His mercy is for those who fear Him. His mercy. The word mercy typically in the Bible does, does not have any kind of reference to what a person deserves or does not deserve but rather, it, 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 just, it just pictures God seeing misery and relieving it. That, that, is, that is mercy. And it makes sense, again, for, for, for Mary to laud God's mercy as she has emphasized her own suffering and that of the people around her. And, and, and again, the most ultimate suffering, the most ultimate misery is our suffering under sin and our separation from God. God sees that. He saw it the instant it happened in Genesis chapter 3. Saw that misery. Saw what, what, what separation from Him was going to mean for man. Saw the, the misery that would happen under the weight of sin. And He has moved to help. Look at the corresponding verses in verse 54. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to His offspring forever. By sending His own Son, this King of David, God has helped His servant Israel. He remembered the mercy that He promised to Abraham. This is, this is all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. God promised to bless Abraham and to make Abraham a blessing and to bless those who bless Abraham, to curse those who curse Abraham. The misery that sin had brought into the world was going to be alleviated somehow, God is signaling there in Genesis 12, all that misery is somehow going to be alleviated through the offspring of Abraham. And as Revelation progressed from Genesis 12 all the way through the end of the Old Testament and into the New Testament, it became clear that the blessing of Abraham was going to come through the line of David. The son of David would bring blessing to the world. He's going to bring a kingdom that is free from misery of sin. The point here is that all this represents God keeping promises made long ago. God said to Abraham, I'm going to do this. And Mary now recognizes here, God is keeping His promise. Now, how much more do you and I have to exalt and exult given that we have all the more revelation available to us than Mary even had? Mary anticipates the imminent coming of her son and and about whom the angel said back in 32... The, the, the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. We now know exactly what Jesus has done, and we know where he is now, seated at the right hand of the Father. And verse 50 tells us that his mercy, that, 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 that kingdom free of all misery from sin, that is for those who fear him from generation to generation. It's for those who fear him. We don't have the time to do any, any proper study on the word of, on, on that phrase, fear of, of God in, in the Bible. But let me just give you the Cliffs notes very quickly. Those who fear God, they live in awe of God and awe that is expressed in love, faith, and obedience. The fear of God is expressed in love, faith, and obedience. Those who fear Him, they delightfully assume their appropriate place under His caring lordship 
And they trust Him to care for every one of their needs up to and obviously including their need for forgiveness from sin. And those who repent and and trust in Jesus, therefore, they are expressing biblical fear of the Lord. Keep in mind that if, if you have repented, turned away from your sin, and you've trusted in Christ alone, what He has done, His his life, His death, His resurrection to save you, then the promise made to Abraham is a promise made to you. And a, a, few, a few places that you might go to, to, to dig into this a bit more in the New Testament, just a couple would be Romans chapter 4 and Galatians chapter 3. All those who trust in Christ are heirs of the promise made to Abraham. Consider again, given, given that the fullness of this promise has not yet been revealed to us. So, so we're, we're told of this, this coming king is going to sit on his throne, and we know that he does. He sits enthroned in heaven even now, but, but the ultimate fulfillment of that is going to come on the day that Christ returns. When, when Christ returns and completely eradicates not just our slavery to sin, but, but even the presence of sin, and he reigns over a, a newly cre- recreated earth and heavens, that's the day of the ultimate fulfillment of all these promises. And so we've, we've got components of the promises made to Abraham that are still ultimately outstanding. In light of that, consider again that Mary uses the past tense to describe these things. By doing that, she's indicating to, to you and I that we ought to think of that coming of Christ and an ultimate eradication of sin around us and in this creation, the recreation of, of the heavens and earth, we ought to think of that as so certain that it's appropriate to talk about it as if it's already happened. God keeps His promises. We've been freed from sin, but we still do suffer from the effects of sin all around us, our own and others, until He comes again. But He is coming because in His mercy He keeps His promises. So, as as we close here, let's consider again what we should do. What we should do because of what God has done. First of all, again, is exaltation. We should exalt God in Christ. And and I would suggest to you a couple of ways that we can do this. I'm I'm in no sense exhausting what it means to exalt God in Christ. Okay, I'm just giving you two. And I would encourage you in your conversations with one another over lunch or throughout the week to consider together additional ways that you can exalt God, put Him in His rightful place in your own eyes and in the eyes of others. But I'm going to give you just two this morning. The first of those is prayer. Prayer, it it is difficult to imagine a person whose heart truly magnifies the Lord who doesn't pray. That that is hard to conceive, somebody who truly magnifies God, and that does not move them to to talk to Him about it. When when, when my wife does something something wonderful, some, some expression of love to me, or, 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 or displays some characteristic that I find amazing, I say things to her. We ought to be the same way with God. Prayer is the most immediate 
and natural way to exalt God. Speak to Him all the things that He is and has done. God, You are strong and Your great strength has been expressed in Your saving me and all Your people from sin. You are holy as demonstrated by Your bringing justice upon evil and and rewarding the righteous. And You have shown Yourself holy in the cross and in the resurrection. I praise You that I am a a benefactor of Your holiness. You are merciful in that You've kept all Your promises to save those who who fear You, who lie under the misery of sin. You could pray those kinds of things. You can also pray that God would exalt Himself in your own eyes. If you recognize in some way that, that you, have, you have demoted God and, and, and you have promoted things as silly as marshmallows. You say, Lord, please help me. Please help me to exalt You. Please exalt Yourself in my eyes. Show yourself to be in, 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 in my own understanding, the things that I experience and see. Show me how much greater you are than these lesser things. Oh God, be everything to me. Prayer is one way to exalt him. Another way to exalt him is through proclamation. It's through proclamation. Not just prayer, but proclamation. So we're not just telling God how great he is, but we're telling others how great He is. We're telling, we're telling other believers how great He is. And, and we might think, well, all my Christian friends, they already know. They already know how great He is. Well, tell them again. I like to hear it. I, I, I can tell you that one of my favorite things to do as a pastor, and I've heard other elders, other elders say this thing, one of my favorite things to do in, in ministry here at Providence is to conduct membership interviews. And those of you who've been through those, you, you might know why. We love to hear other people tell us the gospel. And we love to hear what God has done for sinners through Christ. It has the effect in me of causing me to exalt God. Amen, brothers? Would you all say yes to this? So my, my, my fellow elders all amening that. Share what God has done. Share His greatness with the people sitting next to you, the people across the aisle, believers outside this room. Speak of His greatness. Tell of His wonders. And proclaim Him to the lost. Proclaim Him to the lost. Again, it's difficult to conceive of a heart that exalts God. It's difficult to conceive of that heart being attached to a mouth that's silent about Him. That just doesn't compute. If we really believe that God rescues sinners from the misery of sin, we'll tell those that are still under the weight of sin all about Him. It should be the natural thing to do. We should exalt in those two ways. Again, you speak, talk amongst yourselves about other ways to exalt Him, but we should also exalt, exaltation. We should walk in joy. Now, some of us may find it puzzling for for a preferred emotional state to be a command in the Bible. And, and Now, it's not a command here. It is commanded elsewhere. We're told to be joyful. And some of us frequently, when we come across these, how, how do I do that? How is that even possible? Now, when Andy Williams tells us to do it in a Christmas song, we don't think a thing about it. When the Bible says, how am I supposed to do that? How, how does God expect me to do that? Well, what can we do if we find ourselves not in a state of joy, 
but we know that we should be and we want to be. What, what, what should we do? Well, one thing that we can do, our emotions tend to follow our thoughts and our meditations. And uh, some of us are in the habit of letting our minds just loose like, like a puppy in a park. Which is no control, just let them roam wherever they may and, and get into trouble. We should control our thoughts. We should train our minds. We should lead them where they should go. And the greatest place to take our thoughts is to the greatness of God displayed in the gospel. The most joyful people, contra secular Christmas tunes, the most joyful people in the world are typically going to be those who have developed a strong and delightful discipline of thinking deeply and at length about what God has done for us in Christ. See see these people around us as, as we're singing on Sunday mornings? Some of them can't control their hands. It's just, it, it, see these words that are reminded of the truth, and they raise their hands in worship. That, that, that is joy in the Lord coming out physically. And, and this is what happens when, when we are confronted once again with what God has done for us in Christ. It, it creates joy in our hearts. Now, if you're not a hand raiser, I'm not condemning you or saying that you're not joyful. That's, that's just an example. But, but we should take our thoughts to the gospel. And when we do that, it puts, puts all other things in our life in perspective. Those things about which we are, we are tempted to be angry, despondent, sorrowful, depressed, discontent. Those things, they just start to fade away in the background in light of the comparative significance of God's mercy through Christ, which has eliminated misery and sin eternally for those who trust in Him. And so, let's, let's think about this. We, we've, got, we've got a week, eight days between, between us and Christmas Day. And many of us have, have stuff packed into our, our calendars like sardines. Let us not go through all of that stuff with our minds, our hearts, our words, our emotions devoid of exaltation and exaltation. May the gospel of Jesus Christ carry us through these days as if on a cloud, hardly able to fathom that these things are true, and therefore raising high our great and powerful God and exalting Him and exalting in our hearts. Let's pray. God, you are good to us. We praise you as the mighty one who has done great things for us. In your power, you have saved us. In your holiness, you have brought justice. 
and your mercy, you've kept your promises. Lord, let these things ring not just in our ears, but in our minds, down in our hearts. And Father, let it result in exaltation and exaltation. We pray, Father, that that, that we would respond in appropriate ways to what we have seen this morning. And we, we ask that in addition to the things that we've heard this morning, that in the coming moments you would reveal to us what we might do with these things. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.